Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The samurai is over. Don't forget your hats. Tu as des ennuis? Il faut trouver le moyen de la faire craquer, alors elle parlera. Que le juge d'instruction n'est plus qu'à l'inculper de faux témoignages ou de n'importe quoi. Il obtient Jeff Costello. On le fera asseoir ici sur une chaise. Jeff Costello, personnage central d'une intrigue dramatique. Le Samouraï, un film de Jean-Pierre Melville. Raccrochez-le. Allez. Andy, did you know when you started watching this movie that it was going to be a case example for secret agent cosplay? <laughs> this thing is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I tell you, I, if there's one person who knows how to wear a trench coat and a fedora, it's Elaine Delon. He sure does. He is principal character number one. I I loved that. That was so crisp, his raincoat. So crisp. It made me want to go out and buy one. I mean, that's how well it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really worked. And I don't I, even live in the be, rain. So. Oh, had this movie been made as, as is today, there would be such a dramatic run on trench coats, like raincoats. I'm sure there, there would have been serious product placement, lots of labels. I'm sure you'd been able to get my first raincoat from like Mattel. And I mean, it was it was perfect. It was perfect in every way so the question I just is now love the idea of mattel releasing the samurai really samurai to- my first maker <laughs> that's right that's nothing here if we're not if we're not thinking of great products andy what are we doing that's right uh the, the real question is does the way alain delon wears his raincoat does it live up to the rest of the movie for you it absolutely does. This is a movie. I have seen this twice now. I watched it for the first time not too long ago, and I I really enjoyed it then, and I definitely enjoyed it now, uh, possibly even a little more so. I think that this film really holds up as a French crime film. In fact, I think I enjoyed it even more the second time around. It just it has a great uh, tone and vibe, and it's not a a, a complicated story. I think it's fairly straightforward what's going on, but it really is a prime example 
of the French tapping into examples of American crime films, American film no- films noir, and creating a film that was very much about mood and uh, just kind of the the tone of this life and and the way that this particular character kind of went about everything that he did very much kind of a, a almost like a meditation in silence in a weird way you know i yeah, yeah it's I, really interesting yeah. film. It, it really it's a movie that celebrates action and uh process i think and that's a weird thing to celebrate in a movie but there are films that really uh that that do an exceptional exceptional job of of highlighting the activities of a principal character. And I, I was brought back to uh, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo as another one of these movies. And, and one of the things that we said so much uh, about that was how it made research sexy. Like the whole process of finding photographs and articles and scanning them and taking pictures of them and and swiping through them on the computer was such a sexy, uh, like centerfold of process orientation. That's what I felt like from this movie. Like it made this guy and his incredible drive to build alibi uh, a, a sexy endeavor. And I was deeply engaged with it. It it also I think removed the sort of uh, uh lens of uh the just sort of criminal agency. Like there there was no it, it felt like it, as weird and as sort of artifactual as the trench coat and hat are in this movie because now we don't wear trench coats and hats. It's become a thing that is the secret agent like de facto standard uniform because of the way those elements, those sort of tropey elements integrate into this movie, uh, it, it it sort of just pulls back the veil on the way criminality interacts with mainstream, in this case, Paris. Uh, and so in that regard, I, I loved watching this in the the trio of films that we are, have already started with in our now going to be a lifelong obsession with French crime films because they're <laughs> awesome. Uh, how did this it hit you in parallel with or or in sequence with uh, Rafifi and Latrue? Well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, we have the color difference, which is one factor that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, the fact that this one is in color, the others were in mm-hmm. black and white. Uh, but this this film... I, I think it's it it does feel like we're seeing a progression and we've gotten a little bit out of order. Rafifi was 1955. Latrue was 1960. This one was 1967. I do feel like uh, by the time we get to this film, there has been some progression in the way that uh, and I know it's a sampling of three. It's not a great yeah. a great, uh, you know, uh, sample by any stretch of the imagination, but still, just looking at these, I can definitely see a a progression from those first two to this. As I guess you could almost say, like that French New Wave really started kicking in and influencing the way that these stories were being told. Because this film, while the others certainly do have a sense of realism uh, that was integrated into them, this film definitely takes all of that, and we still have that in it but we also just get like i was saying it's it's almost like this meditation it's kind of this uh, a little more of a an internal um examination of this particular character we're not so much focused like you said on the criminal uh element on one side of him um there's a little more focus on the police side on the other side as they're trying to uh, pinpoint this guy, but really our focus is this one guy as he's just kind of navigating this, trying to kind of make his way through. And, and so I think, uh, yeah, it's not perfectly clear, but I do feel that there are some signs that the there are changes in the way that the the French are telling these stories as this one kind of moves into a little more of a new wave sort of tone. Interesting, too, if you maybe compare it to to some of the 60s and 70s crime films here, right? I mean, if you look at this next to a movie like Marathon Man, or, right? Or, um, uh, I don't know, what are some other ones that we talked about? I was thinking um, about Thief, specifically. Thief, yeah, Michael that's Mann. a great, 
great one, um, a great example, and and you can really see some of the parallels there too. As you're sort of removing the the artifice of of crime, the sort of fanciness of crime, and instead you're just demonstrating crime. Like this is this is what it looks like, and these are the real people, sort of real in quotes, real people who are executing on these things. And this is the we're going to remove the emotion and just let you see it. And we believe that the story is strong enough, the action is strong enough to to hook you and, and keep you with us to the very end. And I would say with uh, Samurai, that is um, absolutely the case. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting example of a crime film because it does have such a tone to it. And you can really see how somebody like Michael Mann would pull from it as a source for, I mean, not even just Thief, but I would say even Heat. You can really mm-hmm. get a sense of kind of that the the pensive criminal and the the quiet the quiet criminal who does his job, does it well, and is always working to get ahead. But it's done in just this kind of very kind of methodical fashion. It's really interesting the way that uh, the way that it is portrayed and becomes something that does turn into such an influence. What do you think about the color uh, black and white thing? I mean, this movie, it's it's in color. And, I, you know, coming off of these last two films that I found were so satisfying, I wonder, was that jarring for you? I actually ended up really liking the color. I think that the reason is because uh, Jean-Pierre Melville did such a great job of making this world feel like it's a part of Jeff, our our protagonist here. It it feels as bleak and lifeless as as he is when we're with him. We only really kind of get into the color when he goes to the club or goes to different areas. And and I, I find that really telling the way that the they chose to make this film. It doesn't really it's not strictly like just kind of a black and white world that he lives in, but it is very muted, uh, very kind of drab, lifeless, uh, whether it's in his apartment or whether it's when he's, you know, stealing the cars, which always have that same kind of grayish tone, or when he's driving to the mechanic that to, mm-hmm. to get the, the plates changed. It always feels very gray and bleak. And I think that uh, because of that, the, I found that the color palette was um, really effective because of the way that it always felt like um, very planned the way that Melville was uh, was creating this world and using the colors that he had around him on on that we disagree but I think I'm wrong um, and <laughs> uh, I, I the very first note of the film i i wished it was black and white i mean as the smoke is sort of wafting across the room i wanted it black and white i wanted to see him adjust his hat and watch those shadows below his hat and and within the collar of the trench coat go straight to black i wanted it black and white i wanted every sequence under a street light to be black and white but i also recognize that i'm coming to this film with a sense of nostalgia uh, and so what i see in my head is not the film that he made and and uh, you know what I see in my head is is a throwback to to these great images and uh, and so I I know that that's what I'm bringing to the film it's the baggage that I carry as I watch this film um, it it's the sort of cartoon version of the secret agent that's in my head um, but but I did find myself sort of longing for for um, removing the color even further yeah yeah I I definitely. Um, can see why it would be nice to to have it in black and white. I guess I'm just it. I just find it so impressive the way that he designed it. And it's yeah. funny that the first shot is the one that stood out to you as the one that that um bugged you so much and made you want to see it in black and white because I yeah. felt like he did such a good job of making it feel almost like black and white. <laughs> it does. And this is like me. I can't even just talk about looking a gift horse right in the mouth. Like, I'm not satisfied right. with anything. Like, it's almost black and white. It's not black and white enough. <laughs> That's right. Uh, God. Just like okay. you. Can I, can we talk about something that is not necessarily related to these uh, high uh, high flutin things, these high flutin thoughts? Yes. Is this really how they steal, stole cars in the 60s with just a lot of keys? 
<laughs> you know, isn't that funny? That it, was amazing. It, it, it did make me start thinking <laughs> because I'm like, do they really need to make every key different? Or like, I mean, because yeah. if you have a key to a Volvo, uh, you know, I mean, you're not going around trying every single Volvo you come across. <laughs> but if I, you, I guess that's true. But if you did, you know, is there a possibility that your key is going to work in other Volvos? I'm just saying, maybe we're just clueless and we just only interact with the ones that are in our, in our, in our space. And so, you know, odds are that we will never come across one that is actually the same key. Andy, that's amazing. It turns out there is actually, there are only 17 different keys for Volvos around the world. And we're just very lucky that nobody's ever thought to try. (laughs) I will say I did uh, when I was in, uh, this is probably high school, my buddy's car, um, he was having me move it or something from, because uh, I know, something after school. So I went out to move his car. I hopped in the car, I unlocked it, and I hopped in, and I couldn't get it to start. And I'm like, why won't the car start? And I finally realized it was somebody else's car. It opened <laughs> It opened the exterior door of the car. His key opened somebody else's door. It, luckily, it didn't work in the ignition, or I would have driven off with it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that was great. So things it carries we around this from French Cryfields. That's right, French Cryfields. You carry around a lot of keys, and you can get in in the car. You just have to keep trying them. And I, I found myself. I don't know about you, but the anxiety that this whole sequence generates as he's trying to get into this car, because not only is he trying each key, the way he's trying it, keeping his head completely straight forward, reaching his right hand down to the to the seat next to him, taking each key off of the key ring trying it in the ignition and when it doesn't work taking it out putting it just freely on the on the seat and taking it out like the ring is open on the keys like right, these right. keys could just fall right onto the seat and be loose in the car and he's driving around with 100 keys and a giant key ring just loose in the car that's an incredible mess i was truly truly anxious during this sequence and i recognize it's probably not the most uh, anxiety riddled scene in the film, but it set me on edge. My pulse was uh, quick. That's awesome. Is it? It's very funny. It's it's very funny. Uh, well, it's but it's interesting because it made me think about kind of these the nature of these crime films. And here we had Rafifi beforehand with the break in and how some countries banned the film because they said it basically is teaching people how to break in to places. And and you had the prison escape in Le True, which was very realistic. Again, all kind of French New Wave, kind of the realistic way of portraying these things, documenting. Yeah. style and then going to michael mann's thief and how meticulous that was and how they actually had a real thief train uh the actors to kind of do you know break-ins and and break into safes and i thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting thing to see here that we're having again another example and i don't know if it's accurate or not but it seemed like hey why not uh you know it, it was something that felt kind of accurate the way that uh that delon goes about uh, performing that scene there is a challenge that i have with the film uh and i think it i think it's one that we've aged out of that it, when this film was released it was totally appropriate and believable for this particular thing to happen and today this thing happens and I, I look at it with a side eye. Like, I think the whole, it's possible that the whole thing could fall apart. And I'm hmm. curious what you think about this. What is this thing? He commits the crime. And of course, we, we, everybody's wearing trench coats and hats these days. He commits the crime. He's brought in for questioning. It's a whole usual suspects kind of a gambit. And he's brought in. He puts him in the lineup, step forward, you know, say some things, go away. Yes, number three. No, number three. And, and there is you know, sort of plausible uh, reason to believe that he's going to get off because, you know, they don't uh, they don't have a, a hundred percent, you know, united front. Yeah, of some witnesses, witnesses say it some witnesses him, say right? it's not him when the police initially picked him up. Right. He committed the thing and was seen in his trench coat and hat. But when the police picked him up at this at this uh, after hours gambling room, his hat and coat were just piled on the bed. What if, 
What if he had left his hat and coat at the gambling room? Like, what if he just said, that's not mine, and walked out in his suit, and he now doesn't have a hat and coat? He was seen by everybody in the hat and coat. If he's then seen again without the hat and coat, doesn't his entire, the, the, the entire thing fall apart? Like, I, I really struggled with that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I worried too much about it. One, because um, I, I, it was an era where everybody was wearing hats and coats, and I felt mm-hmm. like it might have been more strange for him to not take a hat and coat when he left it you know the police might have found that to be more suspicious mm-hmm. or it could have raised more alarms um just if they had had to ask or somebody accidentally said hey don't forget your stuff um so it could have created a bigger issue as opposed to just taking it it seems like a guy who is so fanatical and and uh, about creating alibis and and making sure that everything is so tight might have thought about the hat and coat thing because many sequences in this movie, particularly in the police station, hinge upon the hat and coat. Having all of these guys stand in a room, all of the potential, uh, all of the accused in the room, the usual suspects, and having them switch hats and coats like that's that in the context of this movie is a is a fascinating scene and and watching uh, the witness say, no, it was that guy, but with that hat and that coat. And it turns out he's putting together the puzzle of the actual suspect that we're talking about. Right, I right. mean, that I thought was great. It was great. And yet I couldn't, I was like shouting, Lee, burn the coat, like burn the hat. <laughs> For tonight, maybe you just not be a guy who wears a hat. Come on. Like it, it, it felt like uh, the, the foundation of the defense of this movie is built on something that to me was flimsy. There were things that he did periodically in the film. And honestly, I feel like some of it might be just the way, you know, we have this idea of this criminal who has this identity and yes. he sticks with his identity through thick and thin. No matter regardless. what. And, and I feel like that is really kind of what my takeaway is with all of this is that that's who he is. He's not going to leave it behind. It's that's like as Superman much as, who yeah. shows up without a cape, but everything else. Yeah, like, like that makes no sense. Yeah, makes no right. sense. All right, but but at the same time, I mean, you know, he does other things that you know you could say, well, that's perplexing. Why did he do that? Like when he walks out of his apartment and he throws away the what looks like a an orange in a bag. But uh, it's actually just a wad of like all of his bloody bandages <laughs> yeah, and everything. Why did he do it right at his front know, door? Right as he walks out and uh, he knows he's being tailed. It's like, I, you know, and at first I was like, OK, so he's dropping that as a lure to see like when he comes home, if it's gone, then he knows he was being followed. If it's still there, then he knows he wasn't. But no, it just was him <laughs> littering, <laughs> just throwing his trash away. <laughs> <laughs> out in the street he, like he would have been better off just throwing it away in this trash can at home you know totally it, it, totally it was an odd decision to make because you'll note that later the two guys like the two uh, uh cops go in to plant the world's largest bug in his house <laughs> or in his apartment and they don't check the trash can like it's not like they're searching the house for stuff no, they right. they probably could have but uh they don't instead they plant this brick of a of a microphone in his windowsill that uh, uh you know of course he he later finds because he's so sneaky um and uh and, so because he's, he's so got the alarm right. bird because he has the alarm bird exactly the bird <laughs> like the the fact that his his like sixth sense is a bird that loses a little bit of its fleece like that is um that's that's like alpha level spy stuff right there i i've never seen i've never seen that <laughs> before um and and I wonder if there's a reason I haven't seen it again. So it's it's those kind of perplexing <laughs> things that that I think make that part of the story a little bit uh, flimsy. Yeah, I I I I mean I totally agree with you. I think all of that's there. I just don't know if I would say it's flimsy. I just think it is an element of him as this kind of this kind of this lone wolf warrior and it's just the way he operates whether it's going to get him into trouble or not. He's just going to kind of stick with it. And I, I find it really interesting that that's his methodology. 
like all of those elements are they they may have hit me sideways but there are uh, other sort of artifacts of the period that i was super satisfied with like for example all he has to do is pull his car into his you know silent smoking gadget buddy and have the license plates swapped and suddenly he was okay he's invisible like those were the days right where you could j- where james bond could just flip the switch and the license plate thing would twist on his car and he would have a new car like those kinds of things i found totally believable because of again my nostalgia for sort of comic book era uh, spies dick tracy stuff and uh, so i i didn't look sideways at that at all uh, well you know he learned his lesson from when he watched Rafifi. come out before this he's like those guys you know they made the mistake of not changing the license plate on that car and that got them into trouble and don't forget they like went through the engine like they were went hard on that car those were serious (laughs) cops serious beat cops (laughs) i think we um we've been kind of talking about our protagonist here and kind of his ways and everything but i do think it warrants just a little more conversation just the fact that the title of this film is the samurai or le samurai Mm -hmm. in uh in french and we even start this film with um a quote which i found it is actually a fake quote uh come up with by uh, the director (laughs) when he wrote the script which i just think is fantastic uh, the quote is, there is no greater solitude than that of the samurai, unless it is that of the tiger in the jungle, perhaps. Bushido, Ooh. Book of the Samurai. Does the uh, book exist, or does he just make up a book, too? I don't know if he made the whole thing up or what. Or but... did he just make up a quote from Bushido, the Book of the Samurai, because that would be, like, great. We're going to start making up quotes. Like... Yeah, there is there is Bushido, the the way of the samurai. So All right. Who knows? Excellent. Maybe he, maybe he had a copy, but it was uh, not translated to French, so he just like, well, <laughs> it probably says something like this. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what did you what do you want to talk about with relationship to this made up quote? Uh, so a samurai is is a Japanese warrior who uh, works for a lord, and uh, as we know from discussing Ronin, when mm-hmm. that lord is killed, then they are uh, left as a, a wandering warrior with no master, and they become Ronin. It does it does it make sense? What does it do for the tone of the film? Uh, to kind of have it called the samurai. Does that change your perspective on anything that we see over the course of the way that the film plays out? Well, it, it's it's hard to tell uh, for me. And I, I am so glad that you brought that up because I found myself, I don't know if you're, if you're indicating that you were maybe frustrated a little bit by that, but I know I was. And I was frustrated because of Ronin, uh, because of my extensive study of Japanese uh, feudal culture that I learned through Ronin. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> extensive. And uh, the fact that I never got a sense in this movie that our hero actually had a, a, a lord, right? He, he felt like he was a ronin already. He's just a hired gun. Uh, unless what we're seeing is actually his fall from, you know, his lordship. Like well, what we're actually seeing is his relationship being torn asunder. That's what I, I feel that we are getting here. Like I okay. feel like he is very much the this uh, this kind of character who I mean, as the as they say about him, you know, the 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 crime lord who is hiring him, um, you know, they say that he's like he, I can't remember what he's like, but he's the best, you know, and and um, he's the one who never makes any mistakes and always um, is the guy who gets yeah. the job done and uh doesn't have to think about it it just he does it and um i think that's very effective it is very effective but it seemed like there was just a guy in that organization who was constantly protecting jeff from the opinions of others and that's why they like their first instinct was to try to have jeff killed their very first instinct wasn't to hear the whole story it was just to off him and get him out of the picture that felt like something that uh, an inexperienced a group that was not experienced working with him might do uh, and i so i found that questionable well we're coming into so this is an interesting example of a way that this story is played out because you know i mean just a recent example that i'm thinking of is the uh, is the kenneth brana version of murder on the orient express 
because he included an opening crime showing Poirot at his best, how he can solve a crime so effectively, so cleanly, and so efficiently before we get into the the bulk of the story when he actually goes on to the Orient Express and solves the crime there. Mm -hmm. This film is... I suppose you could say kind of like the original Agatha Christie book, where we don't get the backstory. We don't see how effective Jeff is for these guys, and we don't see him doing any other jobs. We don't know exactly how he's done. All we know is what they say about him, and I I found the quote. They say, um, I admit they don't come any smarter. That's why we hired him. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think that likely... It's it's one of those examples of kind of this sparse style of filmmaking that they were doing with their storytelling where they're not going to show us those previous examples. They're just going to say, you know, he's he's the best and that's why we hire him. We just happen to come into the story the one time when, uh, you know, he all of the stuff doesn't quite work as well as it should have. And he ends up getting uh, getting pointed uh pointed at as the potential uh criminal when right. he uh by the police and and witnesses and everything else and that is the moment that this this crime uh group whoever they are i don't think it's quite a syndicate but whatever they are uh they say you know what he's he's getting too close we need to kill him and i think part of that also is the fact that there was this connection which we haven't even talked about between Jeff and this uh, this pianist Valerie, who he kind of she walks in and uh, after he's killed the the first um, person that he's gone to kill the club owner, um, he uh, she walks in there. But there's this connection there. There they kind of you know there's a connection, and when she uh, is brought in to um, to point out the witnesses, she says it wasn't him. And they have, there's this kind of a, it seems like a, a, a draw between these two characters. Later, we learn that the house that she's in is the owner, is the, is, I'm mean, not the owner, is the, um, the head of this crime organization. And maybe that's why uh, all of this is happening is because there was this actual connection between, you know, the, the lady of the crime Lord and Jeff. And uh, it's, it's hard to say, but that's what I think I like about this story is that there's, it, it doesn't just make it so clean for you. I think there's a little more of this different ways you can kind of look at some of the stuff happening in here. I sort of, at, at some one point, I, you sort of wish that Tim Curry would show up and say, or this is what really <laughs> happened. Uh, because you're right. And, and they uh, trust the audience a lot to sort of make uh, make your own uh, level guesses at what's going on. By the end, my note was, uh, okay, so the samurai sacrifices himself to save this new woman in the bar, knowing that he is being watched and would be shot if he was seen with a weapon. So he pulls out a weapon, but he doesn't have it loaded. He's really just committing death by uh, cop or thug. Right, it's like his action, act of Harry yeah. right there. Right? Yeah, right. This is his act of like, Harry Curie, and right. and so, but but everything by then, I'm I'm having to qualify with. Am I reading that right? Like, does that make sense? It it does to me. That's certainly how I how I read it. I thought it was a it was a pretty powerful ending to his life and career. But by by that third act, you're you're trying to piece together the whole sort of relationship uh, that that goes from being very straightforward to um, quite political and emotional, I think, pretty quickly. Yeah, but I don't think it's confusing in a way that, um, you know, lessens the film. I think I it's... Just, I it, totally agree, yes. I, I think I it, 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 it puts a lot of different puzzle pieces out there for us, the audience, to kind of have yeah. to figure out. And that's, I think, one of the great strengths of the story because it just makes it such an interesting uh, story to kind of piece together. Because like I said, it's kind of, it's not that complicated of a story. You know, right. he commits a job, he's um, fingered by the police, and uh, so the bad guys want him out of the way, um, but they want him to do this other job first, and that's pretty much the story. You know, it's it's not super complicated. It's It's in these little emotional 
connections that some of these people have. And well, the that's way what I that- mean. Like, that's so interesting, too, because the way Delon plays it, we've already made the case that he's he's extracting so much emotion from the portrayal of this character of Jeff. And yet, why then, or, or what sort of a fascinating hat trick is it that he is able to make us feel the way we feel by the end of the movie for a guy who demonstrably doesn't feel through much of the movie? Does he not, though? Or is it just him um, closing himself off? Like, yeah. I feel like there is a connection that he feels with Valerie. Like, I feel like there is a draw there. Um, and yeah. I feel like I'm reading it, even in even in Del- DeLon's uh, very quiet performance, I feel like I can get this sense of, of him having this connection with her. Yeah. And I feel like that's, uh, you know, one of the reasons that uh, they they assign him this final hit that we yeah. don't know about until the end. I, I just I find that really interesting. And the way that DeLon plays it is so interesting because he is so silent and so uh, just stoic in his performance that he gives us nothing we don't know, yeah. really know. But I just feel like you look in his eyes and and there are times where it's interesting because there is a, a, a quote by um, by a, a critic, Rui Nogueira, about Jeff. He says, his gaze is lost in the distance with no, no soul behind it. The eyes of a man completely detached from everything. Well, and that is exactly my point, that but, the beginning of the film, that's exactly who he is. And this is credit to Delon's performance that by the end of the film, I realize that I have just been bamboozled. I've been hoodwinked that this is a guy who actually feels very deeply. And I think that is an amazing trick that this movie pulls. And I feel like I get a sense of that when I look into his eyes, because you're at the very beginning. Yes, I definitely see this from Jeff. Yeah. But by the time I'm getting to the end and I have him in the club and he's kind of looking at Valerie there at the piano, I feel like I'm getting more out of him, even though it's it's very much the same look. And I, I just think that's mm-hmm. his performance. I also think it's just the magic of cinema and the way that that ed- shots can be edited together to kind of, I mean, it's the old uh, montage uh trick from the old Russian filmmakers where they would cut the same shot of a face next to a bowl of soup and next to a, a, you know, a coffin and a child playing. And depending on, uh, you know, what the audience would see, they're like, oh, he's got so much range. You can see him, you know, uh, how hungry he is when he's looking at the soup and how sad he is when he's looking at his dead mother's (laughs) coffin and how happy he is looking at his daughter play. But it's the same shot. And that's, I think, the magic of cinema is you look at Delon and his eyes and then you cut to Valerie as she's looking at him. And I just feel like there's this connection there, even though it's probably not. But it's just, it's magic. And that's what I love about this. Do we need a trope corner? There's definitely a trope that we have. There's a couple yeah, tropes. Do uh, I don't know right. if it's a big trope, but we have the time notations throughout. That That's kind of something that you do see in trope-y. some of these crime stories. Is it useful, but, though? Is that useful? Well, that's, Can we just it's, say it's, it's, an odd, it's an odd thing to include in this film, and I don't know what the benefit of it was in this particular case, because um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, so I would be curious. I didn't pay that close attention to them, to be honest, so I don't know... Um, if it was days that we were watching or just uh, or a week or what. But um, that would be really funny if they're all like six weeks apart and you and yeah, I just right. didn't notice. Right. <laughs> just keep doing their clothes. And, yeah. Uh, OK, so other, I, I didn't I'm with you. I didn't pay much attention to that. Yeah. The, but the big one. And I definitely think this is one that uh, it, it's been used uh, quite a bit. It's the trope where gunfires, uh, gunshots are fired. But we're seeing faces, and we don't know who got shot. And this is one of those things where you've got the good guy and the bad guy rolling around. A, you hear a shot go off. It's like, oh, did the did the bad guy shoot the good guy? Nope, the good guy shot the bad guy, as you find out. That's yeah. definitely the ending here. You know, we see, uh, we see Jeff as he's looking at Valerie over the piano. We see her looking. We cut to him, and we hear a gunshot. But then his face reacts. And then we find out, we pull back, and it's revealed that there are cops here, and, mm-hmm. and uh, they're doing the shooting, and they have killed him. Um, it, it's a trope, and it's definitely something that works in the case of this particular film, at least for me. What did you think of it? E- even that it's tropey, it works for me almost every time. Like, I am, like, there's a reason it's tropey. 
because it's emotionally effective. Particularly here, it's not used, I think, flagrantly. It's not used um, uh, too casually. It's certainly not used comedically. It is, it's used very effectively as uh, uh, at just the right time. Like, it's earned. By the time we get to the end, it is earned. Because you legitimately don't know, like, I, at least for me, I legitimately did not know what he was going to do. Right. I was I was that sort of invested in where he was in the film. Was he coming back to end her? Was he that kind of uh, of uh, criminal? Uh, I, I think he played the movie, the rest of the movie so straight that there was actually an open question. Uh, and, and that makes this entire trope that much more effective. <laughs> yes, definitely. It was a very effective trope. I agree. Trope for trope. the win. Trope right. for the win, exactly. Point trope. All right. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is is the idea of getting work done, and you know, part of Jeff's uh, part of what makes Jeff fascinating to watch is the fact that we're kind of watching him go through the process of all the stuff he's doing to commit the crime, of all the stuff he's doing to create his alibi. Uh, of all the stuff he's doing to um, find a bug, whatever it is, it's it. We're just watching him do stuff. Likewise, we're watching the police, and that was a whole aspect of the story we haven't talked about a whole lot. But how fascinating was it to see kind of the the head of the police as he's putting a plan into place to figure out this guy uh, and you know try to trap him? I really enjoyed that nature of this, and that felt very kind of. French New Wave, kind of just this documentary approach of kind of watching this stuff happen. What did you think of all of it? Oh, oh no, it was great. The the workmanship of this detective as he tries to piece together and tries to get the right suspects and tries to get the right witnesses and and tries to coerce in his own way. I, I don't think, like, I never got the picture that he was a, a bad cop, right? He was a good cop trying to do his job, but he was trying to to pressure to get data out of these witnesses, right? You get the sense that he is, he wants to, he wants to, like, create or, or at least manifest some evidence that fits his version of what happened. And he believed strongly uh, by the end, who he thought the the um, you know the the main suspect was, uh, and, and so I thought that was interesting watching him go through the pain of trying to figure that out. Uh, by the end, though, there's this one sequence as he says, you know, oh, we got we had to let him go, or uh, and I guess we have to go through the same process with all of these guys, right? It's going to be a long weekend or a long day, or just get ready because we're here for the duration. We have to go through all of this, the same thing with everybody <laughs> who's here. And it just made the act of police work feel so painful uh, that, that you, I just think it was really portrayed for me, like talk about a guy who delivers on an emotional experience uh, in this movie. If you're not getting it from Delon's character, I feel like you're getting it much more from the police as they, as they demonstrate their craft, so to speak. That was Francois uh, Perrier, who uh, was the superintendent. Uh, yeah. I just thought he did a great job playing yeah, that character. I did too. Yeah, uh, and and uh, Natalie Delon as uh, Jane Lagrange, right, as the woman that he would use for his alibis, which was uh, you know a, a great scene, especially when she's when the police are confronting her, and she pretty much tells them to. Take a hike, Jack. I, I can't figure out if during the sequence where she's being pressured by the the police, isn't that a, an interesting sort of depiction of that exact pressure I'm talking about that we get to see him go through? Like he's you can tell he really needs her. He needs her to come clean about this. And she just won't. And he can't get he just can't get enough out of her uh, to actually make the case that he needs to to have made. Um so I, I thought that was a terrific scene, and she was just great in it, uh, being able to sort of showcase the the life that she leads uh, and maintain her composure. And Kathy uh, Rosier, uh, she is the pianist, and she was another great addition to the film that I, I just thought her presence uh, worked really nicely. Um, yeah. And and she performed really well. You know, she definitely had kind of that uh, that 60s jazz 
singer vibe. <laughs> I like her. She had uh, fake piano playing shoulders. Did you notice as she's <laughs> as she's not playing the piano, like her shoulders kind of bop <laughs> to the chords. I thought that was really fun. That's great. Uh, so it was great. John Pierre Melville. Have you seen much of his work? I'm not sure. I have seen uh, very little of his work, but um, uh, shortly after this, he will do Le, Le Cercle Rouge, The Red Circle, which I have mm-hmm. seen. Um, he also did Army of Shadows, Un Flick. He did Les Doulots, uh Leon Morin Priest. Uh, he did uh, Bob Le Flambour. Uh, uh, yeah, he's yeah. done quite a bit. Uh, Les Enfants Terribles. Uh, was 1950s is one of his earlier ones, and I th- yeah. think uh, I, I, mean, I haven't even seen that. So I think, yeah, I think it's yeah. f- fair to say that I have these are the only things. Uh, this is the only thing I've seen, uh, but I am a big fan of Jean Cocteau and the who wrote the novel for Les Enfants Terribles. Right. I think I should see that immediately, like post haste. Well, yeah, and, and Melville is definitely a director to explore. I mean, very much kind of the. Uh, kind of a, a father of the French New Wave. You know, he was definitely around for it, mm-hmm. and uh, he is a filmmaker who, with the the films that he made, has been very influential in. I mean, just Asian cinema. You look at what John Woo does, and uh, you know, is very influential with that in other European cinema over here in, in America. We've already talked about Michael Mann, but Walter Hill certainly. You see a lot of uh, of kind of Jeff's character in The Driver, and or yeah, sure. and, and and so I, I feel like that's something that you get out of uh, Melville, and this film is how these uh, these other um, these other filmmakers have kind of used his sensibilities to kind of uh, pull into their own. I mean, John Woo's The Killer is very much, uh, you know, inspired by this particular story. I mean, so much so that the mm-hmm. plot feels very similar. And uh, Chow Yun-Fat's character is named Jeff. So yeah, I think right. there's, a, there's a lot of that um, in here. But I mean, Jim Jarmusch has been influenced by by him um johnny toe george clooney's uh film the american was kind of said to be influenced by this um uh, drive another one we talked about on the show here um it very much is uh, uh you know this story and uh jean-pierre melville are very influential uh i am just going through the list of of plot synopses and i think we i, I I sense a series. Uh, I'm ready to watch the Deuxième Souffle right now. Uh, yeah. It's, it looks incredible. Lots of stuff probably worth talking about. Holy for sure. cow. Yeah. And he's worked with his DP on, on quite a bit of them. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not going to try with the DP's name. Henri, I got that part. Yeah, he is. Talk about a guy who has some creds, 116 credits, and he's behind the island 1980 which is a big guilty pleasure for yours truly oh really <laughs> oh yes have you when's the last time you've experienced the island oh geez a very long time ago <laughs> oh my goodness oh my goodness yeah no i think that uh, henri has worked with a lot of the uh, french new wave directors uh francois truffaut claude chabral rene clement um melville louis Maul. And I, I think that uh, I, he clearly is a is a cinematographer who's kind of tapped into what they're looking for, and with kind of the with the way that these stories are being told, the natural light, uh, just the um, uh, capturing these locations in such beautiful kind of monotone looks. I, I think that he just did a fantastic job here composing everything. And some really interesting shots, too. I would give credit to Henri and Jean-Pierre Melville. Like, I thought it was really interesting when um, uh, Jeff is confronting the, um, I, I don't know, the representative of the crime syndicate on the bridge of the train station. And just as they both pull their guns on each other, all of a sudden we're watching from inside a train, like in a long shot as they're, these two are going at it. And, and we're just seeing it like through the window past all the barricades and everything. As we see these two guys scuffling. And I was like, what an interesting decision to kind of cut to that at that particular moment. It was a really interesting choice that they made that I, I found extremely effective. 
there's some interesting stuff going on in the very first shot and the very last shot. Do you, uh, and, and I'm not sure what it is. It's almost like we're trying, we're making a transition from a still to motion or through a window uh, of some sort. And uh, it, it feels like the entire texture of the shot changes in the middle of the shot. And I, I can't, I don't know how else to describe it, uh, but I found it incredibly compelling, especially as the smoke kind of comes in. And that's, that is where you realize, I think, oh my God, he has somehow managed to hide a human <laughs> in bed right in front of me that I right. had no idea was there. Uh, it, it almost feels like, um, what was it? It was just recently. It was uh, the, the one, it was it. uh, uh, oh my gosh! I just watched it. Uh, who did Midsommar? The director Midsommar, Ari another Aster. one of his films. Ari Aster. He Hereditary. did the Hereditary. Hereditary. They had the. He does this crazy trick with the dioramas uh, and the the like miniatures, and he goes in, and suddenly you're in the room. Uh, right. it, it's an incredibly effective tool, and that's what. It, this felt like to me was that we are changing scope somehow. We're changing scale, and I think it it was a really neat effect, intentional well, or not. I don't know. The, what's going the first on. shot that was something that I like rewound and, and watched several times because it did feel like almost like a vertigo shot or something. Yes. Like it felt like there was this slight kind of shifting within the shot. And I'm like, what is going on here? I couldn't quite tell. And I'm like, oh, I think maybe they're doing a little bit of that vertigo movement in here where it's kind of mm-hmm. that dolly in, zoom out at the same time or something. It was uh, really interesting. And and I don't know, maybe they weren't, but it, it had something going on. Also, I did want to talk about the sound design in that shot because we hear a kind of that bird tweeting. But again, just like we don't know there's a person there, I didn't know there's a birdcage there. And so the sound design is like, what is this like? Is there a little squeaky thing happening? What am mm-hmm. I hearing here? And it's not until we cut in later that I go, oh, it's a bird cage. And we've been listening to a bird for all these minutes that we've been staring at this shot. And That's that right. definitely made me think that Tarantino used that kind of sound design as a little bit of a uh, an homage in Kill Bill Volume 1 in that totally. snowy garden when you hear the water feature. And it's, uh, you know, not for quite a while before you actually get that reveal of what it actually is. Uh, okay, what do you think of the music? Uh, there's some lovely stuff going on in the score from uh, François de Roubaix. I enjoyed it. I, I felt it very much felt like a Henry Mancini 60s spy film sort of vibe. I, I thought it worked very well in context of the time. And uh, if anything, I would say the music works really well for kind of that vibe. But in a film that is so still and so pulled back, sometimes there may, we might be better off not having quite as much, but still I enjoyed it for what it was. I think my challenge with the score, and I do love it, I think it's a it's a great use of music. I think my challenge is that we just came off of, uh, you know, this heist movie right where we have these long stretches of natural sound and silence and and texture of this sort of world that we're living in and i thought i found that so powerful and there were periods i agree where i felt like this is there's too much music going on i just want to hear him dress his wounds right i want to hear what's going on in his apartment give me the bird in the background and shut everything else off i don't it's mysterious enough it is mysterious enough as it is um and and possibly layering the score was was too much in in some of those sequences some of the other sequences though it's incredibly intense and fun and uh exhilarating and i i think it's it matches with the driving sequences quite well although the rear projection is terrible uh <laughs> it, otherwise i think it's uh, it's really well architected soundscape yeah definitely how to do it award season uh, not much. I was kind of surprised. It had um, one win, two other nominations, all at the same place. It was at the Faroe Island Film Festival, which, from what I can tell, is a set of islands off the coast of Denmark. Uh, De- Elaine Delon won the Best Actor. It's the Golden Train Award is the name of the award there at the Faroe Island Film Festival. So he won Best Actor, and then the film itself the film itself was nominated for Best Film, but lost to Samurai Rebellion, which uh, I haven't seen, but now I'm curious about. And also, Elaine Delon uh, was nominated for the Actor Award for Best Actor, 
So there's a few different acting awards, which I think is interesting. He lost the audience award to Warren Beatty in Bonnie and Clyde. So it's interesting. He won the Golden Train Award for Best Actor, which I guess is the, you know, the the membership of the Academy for the particular festival, but lost the audience award. So there you go. Those are the awards for this one. Now, I know you've had a, a rough run in terms of uh, the budget and money related to these old French crime films, Andy, but did you find anything for how this thing did at the box office? Well, like you said, it is tough finding any information for these old French films. For this film, I could not find any budget info. I did find that it earned $1.2 million in France, but I'm not sure if that's adjusted for inflation, if it's in francs. I don't know. No idea. Uh, this movie did open in France October 25th, 1967, and it did not have a U- U.S. release except in New York on July 12th, 1972. And this is interesting because of the success of The Godfather. They released this as The Godson <laughs> when they released it in the United States. Uh, they released it opposite the Disney uh, Kurt Russell film, Now You See Him, Now You Don't, the Burt Reynolds comedy, Fuzz. Clint Eastwood's Joe Kid and the Western, The Wrath of God. Luckily, people have realized how great this film is, and it has done a good job of finding its audience, even if I can't find all the information to prove it. Who is the godson in this movie? Yeah, right? Like That what? doesn't make it's, any sense. This was back in the day when they would just name a movie just to uh, trick people into going to watch yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the Godson. Oh, it must be a sequel to The Godfather. <laughs> oh, well, it's like at a time when they didn't have, you know, well, I guess they had The Godfather is the one that had the, the wasn't it like the first film that had a number in its sequel, The Godfather Part Two? Yeah, right. Yeah. Before that, it was all like The Thin Man, Return of the Thin Man, The Thin Man Lives, or whatever they all are. <laughs> Uh, well, I hear 2001 was released in France as like Jedi Saber Duel. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, uh, Andy. Well, this was fun. Uh, this was fun and it was a great series and it's a, a heck of a movie to end our, uh, our brief foray into French crime cinema. But now we have to do the thing we have to do, and that is we have to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll catch uh, the list of all of the movies that we've ever talked about on this very show. Uh, if you uh, swipe in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, you'll go straight to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Le Samurai or Videodrome. I'm going to say Le Samurai. Yeah, okay. Le Samurai. Le Samurai or All of Me. I'm going to say Le Samurai. Yeah, Le Samurai. Le Samurai or Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I will say Scott Pilgrim. The Samurai or LA Confidential? LA Confidential. Confidential. The Samurai or Creed 2? Creed 2. I sure like me some of that Creed 2. I will say Creed 2 as well. The Samurai or Live Free or Die Hard? Live Free or Die Hard. Yeah. This is where I acknowledge the Samurai is probably the better movie, but (laughs) (laughs) boy, do I love me some Live Free or Die Hard. The Samurai or Seven Samurai? Seven Samurai. <laughs> I will say Seven Samurai as well. Le Samurai or Rocky Balboa? Rocky Balboa. I will say Le Samurai. Hurting bombs, Andy. Yeah. Wow. Here this we go. this French crime thing has really uh, revealed the divergence in the force for us. <laughs> What's funny <laughs> is this film has so far taken the exact path that Rafifi took last week. <laughs> We'll see where we go here. All right, ready? Yeah. One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Look at that. Yeah. You're on your streak now. The Samurai (laughs) or Raise the Red Lantern. I'll say Raise the Red Lantern. Yeah. That, and it did not let us rank it against Rufifi, which is uh, between this and Raise the Red Lantern. Okay, Uh, so let's just do it. Let's just, you and me, let's just do it just for us, just so we know as gentlemen. Okay. I would say Le Samurai. I would say Rafifi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Look at that. Okay. So How'd maybe it's best that uh, it stays here. Yeah. How'd this do on your personal chart? This did well. This landed at 267 out of 4298 or a 94%. Really? 94%. Jumped this up one- there for me. I, as as I look back at it, I, I really enjoyed this movie as I have all the movies in the series. I 
I, I'm always asking the question with these movies, where did the stars start to fall off? And the last two, I haven't been able to really figure that out. Uh, and so they they perform very well. This one, it was very easy for me to realize when I started losing touch with the movie. And as much as I love the tone and the texture and the style and the performances, I just couldn't get past some of those uh, narrative issues. And so it, it landed on my flick chart at 342 out of 1437, which is a 70 And if I am to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, it says it should be a four star uh, film out of five. I'm feeling okay about that. I could go to four and a half, but it's not a five star for me. Where'd it go for you? Well, this film is a five star for me, Pete. Five star in a heart. And uh, I'm a little shocked and disappointed that. uh, But it's still a good movie, man. Uh, Hey, you know, whatever. whatever. Next time I see you, we can fight about it real hard. So where are you landing then? <laughs> uh, I'll go with four stars. Wishy. I'll go with four stars. We'll make it a solid four and a half for the account. You are uh, a terrible person, and I'm I'm better because I did not bully you. You will note on either there, of your uh, scoring here. Wait, so wait there a you go. Wait, wait a minute. At what point? <laughs> Okay, I've bullied you a little bit, but I was just un- <laughs> unveiling uh, uh, what the truth for you. You have done. I invite you to bully me. Convince me, man. No, it's uh, that's that's what our conversation was for. Apparently, I, I did a poor a poor job in the conversation. Note, noted, but I uh, I they're all great films. They're I mean, that's all the thing. great films. Yes, they are great films. This was really fun to watch, and I'm I am disappointed. I'm sad that it is uh, coming to a close. I can't wait to come back to this. Uh, hopefully, uh, sometime soon. But we will just be aware gears. if we if uh, if and when we do come back to this, we picked the three highest rated. So they're just gonna it's just going to be getting worse and worse as we continue. I don't films. know. There, I mean, I'm looking. I look at the rankings of these movies, and it takes a long time for them to drop below seven uh, on the IMDb star scale. So we've got we've got enough to pick from. I think to have a good time. Yeah, I think so. All right, I agree. where do we go from here? We are going to be shifting gears, and we're going to be looking at American filmmaker Spike Lee, and we're going to be looking at three of his films: an early one, "Do the Right Thing," one uh, from the middle area, "Bamboozled," and uh, his most recent Oscar-winning film, "Black Klansman." And we should say, uh, for those who are following along as we do this film, the uh, this series, obviously, "Do the Right Thing" is pretty easy to find. Uh, and Black Klansman's exceptionally easy to find. Uh, Bamboozled is a little tricky to find, and it's our fault that the timing has not worked out in our favor because it's coming. We're just too early for it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Criterion. You're supposed Stupid to be working Criterion. with us. We thought we, had a, we thought we had a spiritual partner in Criterion, and uh, alas, we don't. Uh, there, It's coming. When did it? When is their Criterion Collection version of Bamboozled coming out? 17th, uh, March 17th? March 17th, I believe, yeah. Okay, so March seventeenth, shortly after our episode drops. That's right. So uh, our episode, our episode actually drops on the nineteenth of March. So it'll it'll be out by the time. But you it'll you won't be able to get it as you're listening to this film here on the fifth of March. Uh, you're you're out of time. So just just a couple more days. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And Amazon doth giveth about these films. Uh, this one, I, I have a one star, if you don't mind, uh, from Jack, circa 2012. Mm. If you don't mind, I, I contacted young Werner and he's ready to join us. Let's hear it. This character just wanders around and around. Little happens. I like good Eurofilms like Becker's Tushipa or Grisby. <laughs> But this Melville film is your worst fear come to life as you watch some character walk around from place to place without much or any drama, though he is a killer. It's slow even for a Eurofilm one star.
Mm. He's. I think he's just got back from Poland, and so <laughs> his accent is drifting. <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> a little bit. It's a yeah, little Polish. It's been hanging out with Schwarzenegger a little. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. What do you got? <laughs> well, I have a one star by the Izzy who uh, watched this a little more recently, 2017, on Amazon Prime, and had this one word to say about the film. Are you ready for this? Uh, I should I do? I need to sit down. I don't know. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, I'll just hold on to the desk. (laughs) Here we go. Ready? Schlack! (laughs) Let me me do it again. Ready? Okay. Schlack! (laughs) Now, I don't know if if the Izzy meant schlock. I was wondering because I think, don't you schlack like, you know... It's not shellac as a preservative. This is it's it's not shellacking. This is okay. Schlack. This is like schlack. a new word, and I'm <laughs> I'm very curious what the Izzy actually means by this. I, I assume can it's you, bad because it's a one star word. Apparently, schlack. Do, schlack. Can you, how do you spell it? S H L A C K. That is fascinating. I I have no definition for schlack. I think we've got a new word. It's a it's a it maybe it's a it's a something. It's a shack for for bad movies. Something locks. Send it to the it's ba- a lock shack. It's the <laughs> it's lock, lock shack. Lock. It's the schlack. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, we're going to need to work on a definition for this because it, we might need to work it into the vernacular. I think schlack needs to be in the vernacular. Yeah. Everybody totally. needs to start saying it more often. When yeah. Talking but you know about what? It should mean it should mean something different every time. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with a big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, n- not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman! can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.